please open up to Revelation chapter 3. As we continue our way through this this series in the letters of Jesus to his church. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Tom, and I do hope that we get to uh, uh, chat afterwards. We will have a Q&A this week, but there will be uh, about 20 minutes uh, uh, time in there where you will, um, uh, will be able to chat. So if I haven't met you, please come forward and say hi. Speaking to one of the elders doesn't count. I like meeting new people. Um, uh, so uh, I would love to do that. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 3 in verse 1 through 6. What we find here is the comatose church. I don't know if any of you have watched the movie The Matrix or You're Too Holy uh, or you would never admit it in church, but in the, the movie The Matrix, you have the entire human race that believes themselves to be living and active and going about their own life. What is found out uh, through the movie, and I'm sorry to ruin it if you uh, were hoping to watch it, uh, you've had 20 years, uh, is that it is discovered that the human race is not in fact alive and active. They are comatose and asleep and in, uh, in little bathtubs, in laboratory bathtubs, and their brain energy is being used to funnel and support and, and power the energy grid of the AI robots. They think they're alive, they're living alive because they're in this simulation, their minds are in a simulation called the Matrix, and they are exactly where the enemy wants them to be. They are, in fact, empowering the enemy. And it is a horrible, harrowing reality to come to Scripture and realize that there are Christian churches, so-called, that live generation by generation in that exact state. That there are people, there are Christians who will give money, give energy, rock up and serve, listen to things, partake in stuff, do do the Christian life, so they think, for their whole life and be found in the end to have been a part of a merry-go-round of quasi-spirituality. No true spiritual life there, and such is the situation at the moment that Jesus is speaking to the church in Sardis. Let's read in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. The word of the living God reads like this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your works incomplete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading and expounding of this in our midst this evening. The church of Sardis, as we said, is a comatose church. It thinks it is alive. It says here in, uh, in chapter 3, you have a name of being alive, verse 2. Uh, sorry, end of verse 1, or uh, as the ESV brings it out, you have the reputation of being alive but are in fact dead. It's actually fitting that Jesus would use this kind of language with Sardis saying, you're asleep, you're dead, you think you're alive, you're not well defended, you're in fact very weak, because historically, in their military history, they had, had, been, they, they had been conquered twice, and only twice, because of their lethargy, their apathy, and their sleepiness. See, in Sardis, they were, they were built up, like many ancient cities, they were built up behind huge walls on a, on, on a mountain, on a hill. That was a pretty good defensive strategy in the, old, in the, in the ancient world. And, and, and one side of the, the mountain was inaccessible because it was a cliff. At some point, that portion of the mountain had fallen away. So you only really had three ways to attack the city, and, 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 and the, the, the backside was, was a sheer drop-off cliff that was jagged and, and, and rough, and it was unclimbable. And uh, history tells us, uh, the, the history written down by Herodotus in, tells us that in 546 BC, Cyrus the Great's Persian army was, was coming through and it came to Sardis, which was utterly impenetrable and, and the walls could not be come over and, then the, and the doors could not be bashed down. 
and he gave a, a challenge to his men, and he said that there would be a great reward for the first man to be able to climb and scale the rocks on the, on the cliff edge. There was one man, brave as he was, named uh, Heroides. And while he was watching the cliff face one night, guards all up over the walls, he saw a guard drop his helmet, one of the, 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 the Sardis' protectors, drop his helmet and fall down the great cliff into the gully below. And he simply picked himself up, walked out of sight, and appeared in what was apparently a little secret nook and path on the cliff face. And so Heroides was standing back and he saw, in the light, in the, uh, litten by a little torch, this man walk all the way down the secret path, down the cliff, and collect his helmet and walk straight back up. And he sat there writing and illustrating and planning his attack. The next night, he and many Persians behind him climbed up that very safe, apparently secret path and walked into the city completely unguarded on that portion of town, and they opened the gate and sacked the city in their sleep. Now, that's pretty embarrassing when you're a, you're a military, um, uh, never-conquered city. That happened five, five and a half hundred years before Jesus. Uh, it's, it was so embarrassing that it became a bit of a byword. Like, like if you got conquered by a weaker person in the middle of the night, you did a sardis. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, we say that about some people every now and then. You get arrested for something embarrassing and horrendous. You, 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 they've got an NRL star's name that they attach to that kind of act, right? You, you fall over in a kid's playground and broke your leg. You've done a tom. That's what they say. Uh, you marry the most handsome, muscular man on earth. You've done a joy. There's all sorts of ways we use this phrase. We, we use it, you know, you've, you've done a sardis. They became a byword, like a, like a joke in military history. And then it happened again. In the year, let me get the year right, in the year 200 BC, Antiochus's army was coming through and they mounted ladders in secret at night. They, they built siege work and mounted ladders. How, how secret can you be with enormous cliff-sized ladders, and yet they did it. They, they mounted ladders onto the side, but, but Sardis had not learned its, its lesson. They left that portion of wall completely unguarded because no one could get through it. So, so right at their strongest point, they were overthrown again as, as these men came into the city unguarded, opened the doors while there was another fake fight at the front gates. They simply came through, killed all the soldiers from behind, and opened the gates again. It happened twice. And so the language of Sardis, the idea of Sardis in military history became, became this idea of getting conquered at your strongest point, right, right on the thing that you have a reputation for being inconquerable by, was the very way that you have been conquered. And so it is that Jesus comes to the, the church of Sardis. I told the church plan last week. I don't know what they call people in Sardis, whether it's sardines, but that's what I was sort of going with, but Sardisians, I don't know. Jesus writes to the church in the city, and says, your strong point, right, the cliff face on your defenses is your reputation. And it is precisely because you have the reputation of working hard that you have allowed yourself to go to sleep. And in your sleep, I will come to you like a thief in judgment, and I'll bring my judgment against you. So let's start looking at, at how Jesus introduces himself. Of course, every week, Jesus uh, uh, introduces himself using some of the language of chapter 1. When John had the vision of Jesus and described him, he picks up some of those pictures, ascribes it to himself, and he picks specific things that relate to the situation of that church. Well, we're going to look at what he says here in verse 1 towards the end when I think we will be able to make it a bit more relevant. But now we'll look at the end of uh, verse 1, what he says about the church itself the church of Sardis. He says to them, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive but are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So he's saying, I know your works. Now remember, all of these letters the seven, to the seven churches were going to all of the other seven churches and if Jesus didn't just lie right then, he truly spoke that they have a reputation for being alive then if you belong to Ephesus, Sardis, Thyatira, Smyrna, Pergamum, or Laodicea, you read those words in the letter to, uh, 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 where are we, uh, Philadelphia, uh, who are we, Sardis? You read those first three words, I know your works and your eyes roll. We all know what he's going to say. 
Ephesus was going cold on their proclamation. Uh, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, they're going soft on false teaching and idolatry and sexual immorality. Sardis is going to get a glowing report. I hate Sardis. They do everything so well. They're the, they're the older brother that aced, through, through, uh, aced his grades in high school. Does your, your, your parents are always saying, why don't you be more like Sardis? That's the reputation. Don't assume, like we so proudly do, we read this and go, yeah, if I was alive then, I would have known Sardis' true nature. If I was in Sardis, I would have had the x-ray vision to really know what was it. It's everybody else that gives in to the common reputation. Don't think like that. Just assume that when Jesus gives a rebuke in Scripture, it's going to apply to you. It's going to apply to us. If we were neighbors to Sardis, if you had friends going to the Sardis church, let me say if we were the Sardis church, we would be shocked at what we're about to read. And the other churches would have been. They would have heard here, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. Yeah, isn't that true? Good old Sardis. So, you know, they, let's hand it to them. They are, they are a living church. That would have been their name. Ignite Church, Living Church, Holy Fire Church, whatever, Live Wire Church. They would have had those really hip, lively names. And then Jesus says, and you're dead. Took your vital signs, no heartbeat. Took your temperature, you're dead cold. You have a reputation for works, but nothing, in fact, is going on. They would have received this entirely shockingly. As he says to them, I have found your works incomplete before my God. I know your works, they're incomplete, none of them are full, and a half-done job, right, I'm not going to ask you to put up your hands, but tradies, you know this, if an apprentice tells you that he half-built four frames, he built zero frames. An incomplete job is a non-done job right? I helped six ladies halfway across the street. You, you just could, that's manslaughter. <laughs> I, as a, maybe a midwife or a doctor, I just half gave birth to, that's taking too much credit, somebody will, one of the ladies will get at me. I just helped women give half, birth to six half babies. I did half the job on all of them. None of those moms are, are, are smiling in joy around. If you half do a job, it's not a job done. To Jesus, he is seeing works a plethora in Sardis. They are filled with these half-built works, which count for no works. We have to start asking the question, what is limiting their works? Why is it that, that they are starting well? And it's not that he's saying, like Ephesus, it's not that historically over years they were doing well, now trending down. It's saying that all of your works are half-done works. I think the sin of Sardis, because of the language Jesus uses towards the end of the letter, the sin of Sardis is the sin of the fear of man. They are afraid of what the people around them will think and do and say and treat them as. That's why they're not getting persecuted. They don't get to talk about their tribulation or their trial or their persecution. Under They're not getting persecuted. And here they look like the ideal church. Hey, church, look at how much we're doing. Hey, Jesus, look at how many works we're doing. Hey, world, look at how we're not offending you. Look at how we're not stepping on your toes. Look at how we're not toppling over your idols. Look at how we're not actually preaching against the specific sins of the day that we should really be mentioning. I'm pleasing Jesus and I'm pleasing the world. We are obeying Jesus enough to say we've started there and then we stop where the world says we don't like that. It's that, it's that the, the, the people, if you obey Jesus, all the way up until the world says you need to stop obeying Jesus, the world is your master and not Jesus. He looks at that as incomplete works. Lots of things going on. Lots of things started. Lots of box seeming to be ticked. But in Jesus' eyes, in the sight of his God, the Father, they are all incomplete works to the point that it is all dead. It is deadness. <clears throat> This is the sin of man. Sure, the Nicolaitan free, like they could put their hand up and say that. You know, we're not Thyatira, we're not, we're not Pergamon. We're, we don't have the, the false teachers in our church. We don't have Jezebel trying to preach and falsely teach in our church. And of course, that's all good to a degree. But the question is why? Why don't they have the enemy knocking on and smashing through their front door? Because they're not worth the fight. If you're in a ring with a guy, like just as a bloke, if you're in a ring with a guy or in the bar with a guy, he starts talking smack to someone you love and you stand up and, 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 and front up and you tell him you'll knock him down. He doesn't even look at you. He walks past you. 
That's the worst insult ever. It's worse than getting clocked in the head and getting sent five meters back because you're irrelevant. If you're, a, if you're a city and a conquering nation is coming through and the army is knocking down all of the strategic places, doesn't even bother to visit you, either they're secretly conquering you or you're doing yourself. You're not a threat. There's no problem with you existing in our enemy lines. You're not a threat. And the answer in Sardis is that it is both. They need no frontal assault of Jezebel or the Nicolaitans or the idolatry. They don't need that because they're taking care of themselves in their lethargy, in their quietness, in their apathy, and in their deadness. So the devil does not send a full frontal attack. Rather, his attack is their nothingness. They are asleep. They're a church in a comatose state. They're not in the heated battle for the truth. They are all asleep. There are immediate similarities. As we look at this church, Sardis, reputation for works. They're the living church, but in fact, they're dead. They're incomplete works. They're not getting persecuted. They're pleasing man. There's immediate similarities noticeable between many churches today and the church of Sardis. We could we can imagine a modern day Sardis. No one would call themselves that, but imagine first Sardis church of Logan. We could say, you, you have lots of things going on. You have a reputation for being alive. You have a playgroup. Guess what happens? Kids play in the playgroup. You, you have a community coffee shop run out of the church. Guess what happens? People buy coffees from the church. Strike that up as a win. Women have a picnic, and guess what happens? Women picnic. The men get together for breakfast, and guess what happens? Men have breakfast. The kids have Sunday school, and guess what happens? Kids sit in a room and play. You, you get together every week, of course, and you do your church service, and guess what happens? Well, you sit in the pews together, nod some niceties. A guy gets up, a very nice person, would never offend you, and, and says things that doesn't offend you, just in, that, just in that nice spot where you feel like you heard from God, but God never wants you to change. You and him are so alike. And we have a great sermon. There's great lighting and great multimedia and, and a great uh, uh, social media team that will get it all up on, online and people will see it online and people will hear the message and guess what they're not hearing and what is not happening in all of that? Souls being saved and swept into the kingdom. Now, I hope when I explained all of that, a church with a, with a play group and a community coffee shop and a women's picnic and a men's breakfast and that crap, I hope you did not hear that and think, yeah, that's my ideal church, because I just described to you a church that if I was pastor over it, it would be a trial and a tribulation to pastor it. There are uncountable churches whose sole mission on earth, their sole reason for existing is to give the Christians who go there somewhere to go to worship. If a church's reason for existence is so that Christians can go there to worship, it is irrelevant and ought not exist. A church does not just exist because there's enough people within 20 minutes and they need somewhere to worship. The church exists because there are souls to save, because there is glorious gospel to proclaim, and there are good works for the saints to fulfill and walk out. If a church can disappear and everyone just dissipate and go somewhere else and zero difference is made to the domain of darkness or the kingdom of God's beloved son, then that church ought not to have existed in the first place. And so it is with Sardis. At least that is the threat that Jesus is making, that you are irrelevant because you are asleep. So not only is the devil not at all threatened, but also he's already in your town. He's already killing you in your sleep. Your defenses, where you thought you were strong, is in fact your weakness. I would rather, may, may surprise you, I would rather be in a church that's fighting a Jezebel. I would rather be in a church that has, that has people mingling with their idolatry and sexual sins, and, and that's, that's something to conquer and, uh, because, because that tells me we're doing something worthy of, of the enemy's attention, but not Sardis. Sardis is irrelevant. Sardis is sleeping. Sardis is apathetic. Sardis is dead. <coughs> a church needs a mission, a direction, a drive, goals. It needs a war. It needs to be fighting the good fight of the faith. It needs to contend, as Jude says. It needs to win souls. If it doesn't have that, it's irrelevant. It's off mission. It needs to get back on mission that it might obey its savior. Last week, 
the blessing, if you, if you remember back to, to last week, the end of chapter 2, the blessing that Jesus gave was in verse 26 and 27, the, the conquering Christian, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And we saw in this reality that the gospel doesn't just come with facts about what happens after you die. The gospel is not merely news about what happens after you die. It is, in its data, news about Jesus Christ. Ethical commands, your behavior are not a part of the gospel. However, in the blessings of the gospel is included the fact that you will walk in good works and be, as Jesus said in chapter 2, verse 26 and 7, you will be endowed with kingdom authority to take out and partake in Jesus' kingdom mandate to subdue the nations and bring a kingdom complete to his Father. So the gospel, it's not as if you get saved, oh, sorry, I forgot to tell you part two, there's obligations on you. It is that the gospel makes you kingdom people working in the kingdom, seeking the good of the kingdom and his righteousness. So, so this is why Jesus says to them, <coughs> wake up. Look at verse three. This is what, what the comatose church needs. This is what they need. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come. It is so imperative. Let's start here. The imperative and the need for the church to wake up. You have to realize that, that it is such a strategic move for the kingdom of darkness to have a comatose church somewhere. It is in fact more strategic for the devil to have a comatose church than to have no church. Because if there's no church, people say, never been to a church, never heard the gospel, I don't know Christians. If there is a comatose church, people say, yes, I've been to church, I've heard that message, I've met those people, those lukewarm, those lukewarm slow, unsalty, dry people. Yeah, they're asleep, they put you to sleep. If there is a comatose church in an area, then true Christians go there and funnel their goods and their sacrificial givings in time and money and energy into that place. And much like a dry dock, which, which a ship in a dry dock can cost up to $2 million a day just to sit there. Many churches run the same way. Just to exist with the comfy seats and all of the building and all of the staff and all of the, the pastors and the finance pastor and the kids pastor and the family's pastor and the generations pastor and the transitions pastor and whatever the heck else pastor they come up with. They've got all this staff, all this infrastructure, and it, it bleeds the kingdom drive resources. It is a funnel into which Christians give and it goes to nothing. It's landfill with Christians' resources. Their talents are being buried by that church. Also, another thing, if a, if a comatose church is in an area, other churches, faithful churches, don't see that as a missionary need to send someone into that city, to send a missionary into that area. Because, well, the, the ground seems to be somewhat taken. There's gospel preachers in the city. They're making a difference for the kingdom, but no. They are the sleeping guard on the, on the wall that the enemy walks up to, knocks over, and walks straight in. It is worse to have a comatose church than no church at all. And so Jesus is saying, it is imperative that you wake up. But look at what he says to them about waking up. He says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. What they heard and received, of course, is New Testament language for the, the message of the gospel. So, so here again, we come to the point that Jesus doesn't say, now a comatose church, an inactive church, a church not doing good works, they need the next step of revelation, which is about obedience. No, nor does Jesus say, you got too much gospel grace, I need to pull some grace back so that you start working. He doesn't say that. Sinclair Ferguson says so well that the, the answer to antinomianism is not a bit of legalism. And the answer of legalism is not a sprinkle of antinomianism. The answer for worklessness and works righteousness is both the same thing, the gospel of grace. And so Jesus says, remember what you heard and then repent and keep what I told you. In other words, he's saying, where in the message, when I sent Paul to you while he was preaching in Ephesus and the word of God reached all of Asia, at what point in his message, in his gospel, did you hear him say, you get a ticket punch to heaven because Jesus died and then you do whatever you want in life and at some point you'll 
pass out, and then you'll wake up in the, in the pearly gates. Where did you hear that? Because I think what I sent my messenger Paul to say, I think if you remember correctly, Sardis, if you wake up, check the minutes, and look back on what the gospel you heard preached, you would realize that it said that on the basis of faith, you are gifted the righteousness of Christ, you are made a child of God, loved by God, blessed by God, and the chief blessing given by God is the Holy Spirit God himself in you to empower you for saving others, living righteously, building the kingdom till you die, and they'll probably kill you because you try so hard. That's the gospel Paul preached. So he's saying, remember, where'd you hear all this stuff about floating along? about drifting in the sea of apathy. Not from Paul. Not from the gospel you heard from me and my messengers. Jesus is saying, wake up. Remember what you heard. Not something extra in you. Remember what you heard from the beginning. <clears throat> if you do not wake up, he says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. There is at least five different times when Jesus uses this language in the New Testament, or not just Jesus, but the writers of the New Testament use the language of coming like a thief in the night. Some of them refer to the second coming at the end of time when Jesus appears. Some of them refer to the coming of Jesus in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. This one, I believe, refers to neither of those because neither of those depended on Sardis waking up or not. Jesus is not delaying his coming because the church of Sardis is or is not repentant. He said there's a day set. He didn't come and judge the covenant-breaking Jews because Sardis did or didn't do something. Rather, what he is saying is, like those times, there will be a moment that you don't expect. Remember Sardis' history? I will breach your walls. You'll find out that I'm inside the city ready to judge while you were sleeping. I'll come like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't come with a flare and a warning letter and a greeting. He comes surprisingly. And that is what Jesus is meaning. That in, in some way, Jesus was going to come against the church. Maybe it would be persecution. Maybe it would be people just dying like we see in 1 Corinthians. Maybe it's going to be people leaving and apostatizing. Maybe it'll be persecution that spreads them out. We don't know. But somehow Jesus was going to come against them and judge them so that they either were purified or they were removed as a church. And everyone had to find somewhere else to attend. But here's their encouragement and the promises that come. Look at verse 4 through 6. Jesus says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So, so even in a church that Jesus looks at and says, Dead, there are still a few cells there are still a few organs that are harvestable, right? There is still some life in there that can, through, through the repentance CPR, bring it back to life. We need to be careful when we look at churches and say, that's a dead church, there's no saved people there. Write it off. There's no hope for that church. Can I tell you from my own experience what it, what it, what it has been like at, at some point of my past? We'll get into it in the future sitting surrounded by wolves under the attack, knowing from, from my brothers, my friends at other churches, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a false church, Jesus has left, there's no point fighting, sticking it in, seeing the saints get their knuckles worn out, their skin bleeding, their eyes wrung, red, for the sake of the gospel and seeing the church rebirthed, reborn, and protected by the Lord Jesus Christ. You're sitting in it, by the way, this, that's this church. There's no way to look at a church that has some gospel, that has some Bible, that has true Christians going there and to say Jesus has given up on it. Sardis is a dead church and yet it's got a lampstand in Christ's presence. He writes a letter to them. He tells them to repent as a whole because there are individuals just enough to be holding that corpse together. What an encouraging thing for maybe not at this church, but somewhere else, or in the future you find yourself pastoring, ministering in, or just attending a church that you, you don't have another option. That's your church. And maybe you're one of those few who have not soiled their garments. Jesus looks on you and approves of that action, affirms the righteousness, says you're in white, though everyone else is, is soiling their garments. But what a horrible situation to be in. And here there are some. These are the ones who every week, they're, they're writing to, their, to their, uh, uh, their pastor. Can we hear the gospel, please? Sermons can be longer than 25 minutes, please. 
They're the people who, they, they come to their pastor before the service starts and says, I brought a non-Christian friend today. Please mention Jesus, not just money. Please, can you make sure you, you get to the gospel today because I brought my cousin and she's a Catholic. She needs justification. Just for who? Don't worry, pastor. I'll, I'll send her an RC Sproul lecture. But these are the people who are, who are hoping for true fellowship, desiring true teaching. They are the sheep among a church that is largely unconverted and dead in their comatose state. We see here that they have, these people have not soiled their garments. Now, this soiling is the idea of deadness resulting from the fear of man. In the book of Revelation, the idea of the white robes are the, are the pure deeds are the, the identification with Christ. And we'll go into this a little bit further towards the end. But Jesus is saying, there are some among you who have not let the fear of man stifle their obedience. They have complete works. There's nothing about the Romans in this letter coming against Sardis. There's nothing against the, the Jews that we hear coming against Sardis. And yet history tells us that in Sardis was one of the largest synagogues of the ancient world. Now, is it likely that Sardis would tell us that it just so happens, how, how, how so convenient that, that actually the only city in the ancient world where the Jews were fine with a full, bold proclamation of the gospel was in Sardis. The fact that we're not getting persecuted means nothing. Not at all. If they were living out their true profession, now remember, in, in, in this city, there would, part of the church would have been ex-Jews who had come in to believe in Christ and ex-Romans, and, and if there is no attack, no, no vitriolic response, no persecution, the church is simply not completing their works. They are limiting their obedience to obey their true masters, which is the world, and therefore Jesus is speaking of them as having soiled garments. They have, they have clothes on that are filthy. They are disgusting. Human matter is over them. Dirt from the town is over them. They are not worthy of being in Christ's presence. But it's not enough. It's good that there's living members in this church. It's good that there's some with the white garments unsoiled, but that's not enough to save the church. Jesus says, strengthen what remains. There's some of you, but you all, there's some of you who are repentant, but all of you need to repent. When, when Jesus calls a church to repent, some of us think of it like early morning when the dogs are barking. You're going to pretend to keep on sleeping because you don't have to outlast the dog. You just have to outlast one other person in your house who gets more annoyed than you. As long as somebody gets up, they'll shut the dog up. They'll give the food to the dog. They'll put the bark collar on full voltage, whatever you do. Right? So, so actually, the whole house doesn't really need to matter. As long as one person gets up, that's enough. You've saved the whole house from being awoken. Or it's like when you're having your Sunday nap and you get your neighbor comes over and knock or whatever and you're like me, you're not a Christian when you're asleep, and so uh, you have zero love for anybody when, when, you're, when you're sleepy and tired and, and uh, comatose. And you, you, know, you hear the knocking, and you think, I don't have to get up. My wife just has to get up. I'll just snore. I'll pretend I'm snoring. Or you, just have to, you don't have to get up. You don't have to do anything as long as one other person does. The Lord's call to repentance is nothing like that. It is more like a fire alarm going off in a house, in which case, if you can hear the fire alarm and smell the smoke, it's not enough to pull up your doona because you know that dad will get the alarm. Because hitting snooze on the alarm saves nothing. It does nothing. The church of Sardis should not comfort itself, and neither should any church today. Individuals, I'm talking to you. I would list names if I had the time, but each one of us has the tendency to say, I know that command rings true and powerful and strikes me dead in the heart, but... No one else knows that about me. And there's plenty of people around me that we've got herd immunity with this sin. I'm okay to indulge. They don't know. I'm okay to indulge. I think I'm the only one among others. Or at least I'm friends with an evangelistic person. I'm friends with a holy person. I'm friends with somebody who's not fornicating. I'm friends with somebody who, who kind of, you know, you stand with them and you miss some, of the, miss some of the Lord's blasting judgment. It's not like that. When the Lord's call to repentance comes to a church, it addresses every single one of us. Like we heard a couple of weeks ago, Jesus says, I will judge my church in such a way, I will purify my church in such a way that afterwards you'll stand around and go, how did he know what was in each person's heart? He doesn't judge with broad stroke. 
He finds each of us in each of our sins and brings to each of us the consumption of what we enjoy, the destruction of our pleasures, however he needs to do it. He finds each one of us out because he loves us far too much. And so Jesus has told them, wake up. Some of you are alive, but that's not enough. The lot of you, the church, the whole, the pastors must preach this, must come awake and bring the church to their repentance. But look, look at back at verse 1, at Jesus' introduction of himself. In Jesus' introduction, he calls himself, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We saw in Jesus' own explanation of the, of the text back in chapter 1 that the, the stars, the seven stars, represented the seven angels or the messengers or what we explained, the pastors of each church. And I think by way of representation, he, in other words, he's saying, I hold the church from top to bottom. I hold you, and I hold the seven spirits. Now, this is just revelation language. If we remember, the, lang- the number seven is always meaning fullness, perfection, completion. Jesus is saying, I have the Holy Spirit, scholars, theologians alike, say the seven spirits here and later on in Revelation and back in chapter 1. It's always referring to the Holy Spirit. God doesn't have seven distinct spirits. He doesn't have nine people in the Godhead, but one Father, one Son, and one Holy Spirit, pictured as the seven spirits. And Jesus is holding out his hand, saying, I have the Spirit and I have the church, the dying, breathless, dark comatose church. Now, here's where we are tested. What do you do when the Lord rebukes you in your sin? Do you take leave from God, leave from church, leave from the throne of grace, and go and try and well up in yourself enough of the obedience, enough of the righteousness, enough of the meeting the standards, so that then you can come back to Jesus and be affirmed and approved, and he'll be happy with you because you didn't soil his area with your sinful life. Or... Or are you the one who realizes that what Christ commands the church to do is only possible by the Holy Spirit whom he holds? So that if Jesus is condemning our actions, if Jesus is rebuking us, if Jesus is calling us to repent, there's not somewhere else to go. He's saying, come to me. I'm on the throne of grace. Come to me and receive grace, forgiveness, confess your sins, be reminded of the the right standing you have in me, and then receive what only Christ can give, which is the fullness of the Holy Spirit for obedience. Don't run somewhere else, try and act up some obedience and bring it back to Jesus, but a church on the whole, and individuals, each one of us, needs to come to Jesus saying what you command is impossible. What you're telling me to repent of, that's impossible without you. We can remember back, Revelation often throws us back to Zechariah. And there's a a section in Zechariah, it's made up a new book of the Bible, Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, that that often quoted verse that God says through this prophetic imagery, when the Spirit is being pictured in front of uh, Zechariah in in this very strange prophecy, he is told, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Doesn't matter how many people are in a church or how many people have recently come to a church. Doesn't matter how many people have recently been saved. Doesn't matter how much money the church has. Doesn't matter how big the church is and its size or any of that. Doesn't matter how charismatic a preacher or boring a preacher. The thing that equips a church to be built up in righteousness and repentance is a submission to the Holy Spirit. Knowing the word of God, bending before the throne of God and asking only by your spirit can the temple be built. Can the people of God be righteous? Can the church of God respond to the call to repent? Not by might, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He who holds the seven spirits in his hands makes such an offer and command to his church. And then he makes promises to the conquerors. I want you to look at it. Look in uh, uh, the verse six here. As he begins to talk about what he will do for them. Uh, From verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
The language of his encouragement helps us understand what he's encouraging them to do. In other words, the language of his rebuke and encouragement helps us identify and read between the lines and know what their sin is. So he keeps on saying, don't soil the garments. I'll, I'll give you white garments. He, he says, if you're faithful, I'll confess your name before my father. He's throwing back to the other time he said that in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and verse 33, when he says to his followers, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So, so the sin of Sardis, the reason they need to be encouraged with that is because they are not confessing Christ's name enough. So how can you have both a reputation for good works among the churches, and then Jesus says, you're not confessing my name before the world, and it is the incomplete works the half-baked works where we obey a bit of Jesus and stop when the world gets uncomfortable. This is their sin. They are soiling their garments by an incomplete confession because they feared man and what man would do to them more than Jesus. They weren't confessing him. Now, confessing is different from believing. Believing is in your mind and heart. Confessing is out of your lips and with your lifestyle. Confessing means to identify closely with. So they may be confessing with Jesus a little, but they're not following him closely enough that the arrows which would hit him would get anywhere near them. And Jesus is saying, if you do not confess me with your words and life now, I will not confess you before my Father. We know what happens when we confess Jesus rightly. When we confess Jesus fully, the world treats us the way it treats Jesus. When we confess and identify with Jesus in all that we do, the world treats us the way it treated Jesus, which is poorly, by the way, with degradation and insult and injury and persecution. When Jesus confesses us before his Father, the Father likewise treats us the way he treats his Son. If we confess Jesus, we're treated like him on earth. When he confesses us, we're treated like him in heaven and in the heavenly places. The Father blesses, the Father loves, the Father adores, the Father is pleased with, the Father acknowledges and affirms and exalts his Son, and so he does to us. The confession of Jesus speaking your name before his Father is the one thing you ought to live for. If that is not a certainty in your heart, then you ought not go to sleep tonight until it is. That is the one thing you need not what other people speak of you and confess about you and think about you and what reputation and name you have, but does Jesus know your name? And there is no fear. There should be no fear. There should be nothing wrong with you recognizing now he won't confess my name. He doesn't know my name and I'm not a true Christian. The fear, the error, the problem is to know it and then not wake up. But if now you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you, prying into your soul that, you, that this is the case for you. Christ will never confess your name. He doesn't know your name. He doesn't know who you are. You are not his. He is not yours. If that is the reality, then friends, there is only one place to go, to him who offers grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, tonight, immediately, now, after the service, you need to flee to Christ. Like a, like a crashing wave, we've said this before, like a crashing wave, the safe place is not away. The safe place is in. The safe place is to go to its base and, and jump in. So it is with Jesus. You wait, you run away, he will find you in judgment. You come to him, you confess your sin, you wake up and repent, you find nothing but sheer, infinite, eternal mercy. Jesus will confess the name of those who confess his. Back again to this idea of confessing him where it matters. Many of us, many churches, will be able to say, I stood firm for Jesus on X, Y, Z, A, B, C, all these different topics, to which I think the helpful uh, uh, question is usually, and how many of those got you in trouble? What about the things you were told not to say, you're not allowed to say? Were you faithful in confessing him on those things? In a, in a fictitious play written by Elizabeth somebody, Elizabeth Charles, about the Reformation, she had this made-up friend of Martin Luther who was called Fritz. And he said it better than I can ever say it. So I'm going to read him, who is really Elizabeth Charles. 
Fritz said this, it is the truth which is assailed in any age which tests our faithfulness. It is to confess that we are called, not merely profess. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christianity. Listen to this. Where the battle rages the hottest, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady everywhere else on the battlefield but there is mere fear and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. How many churches, how many Christians, preachers, pastors, Christians, us, individuals would say, I'm faithful on a bunch of stuff, Jesus. And Jesus would say they are all half incomplete, failing works because they are not to complete. They are not to fullness. They are not those ones that the world would have you not do. That's where the faithfulness is tested. In doctrine and in obedience, fear of man, if it makes you draw back, then we are liable to judgment. But if we conquer, if we conquer, white clothes are given us. Look at the blessing that white clothes is, uh, white garments refers to. In the book of Revelation, it comes up multiple times, and the, the image is priestly. Like the Old Testament priests wearing the, the beautiful garments. We, we were going to be given pure white garments, which do two things make you worthy of being in God's presence. And secondly, equip you for service from God's presence. That's the two ideas that you see in Revelation. That you're allowed in, that you're worthy to be in his presence. We will walk with him, Jesus says, because we are worthy, but also that we are able as priests to work in the temple of God and do good work. So we are useful on the mission. It is, we are useful in the church of God if we confess in word and behavior Jesus Christ then we are preserved by God, we are in his presence, and he uses us to serve him. Secondly, Jesus promises the book of life. I will never blot you out of the book of life. Now, some of you are anxious, and you hear Jesus say, I'll never blot you out of the book of life, and you say, does that mean he might blot us out of the book of life? Why would he promise that he wouldn't if he might not, or if he might? Why does he say, I won't? It probably means that he was gonna, and you turn a promise into a curse. Don't get anxious. He's not saying, I won't blot you out of the book of life because he might have. He's saying, I won't blot you out of the book of life, get this, because he won't. That's the promise. There is a book of life that is pictured throughout the book of Revelation, and it's compared to the book of the damned, which, which records all of the sins of all of the people that do not repent and believe in Jesus. And then there is the book of life, which doesn't recount our names. It's just, uh, sorry, it doesn't recount our sins. It just has our names. We are in the, the Lamb's book of life. It's referred to multiple times, five times in Revelation. And the believers of God's, the names of God's chosen people are entered into there before the foundation of the world. So your name is not written in when you believe, penciled in, and then written in an ink once you die. No, you are written in, in the blood of Christ before the foundation of the world. So Christians know this double blessing. My, my sins are not recorded before God. They were imputed to Christ and carried out there and my name will never be blotted out. This is the promise of perseverance. To those who are conquering, Christ will preserve. All those who Christ will bring to heaven, all those that God has chosen will not fail to make it to their dying day faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Compare this promise of Jesus to the curse that the first century Jews used to speak against the Nazarenes. That's the Christians, remember? Jesus from Nazareth. May the Nazarenes and the sectarians perish as in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and their name not be together with the righteous. Christ's promise is the opposite. Those around you want you, you out of the book of life. They don't have that authority. They don't hold that pen. I do. Your name will never be removed. And thirdly, he says the confession of, his, of our name before the Father. And this is the blessing that we were talking about before. That Jesus, who, who to know us is to know himself. For, for God the Father to look on Jesus is to be looking on us because we've been so, so mystically unified is the theological language. A, a mystical union occurs between the, 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 the believer and Christ Jesus, his Savior. That we are bound by the Holy Spirit such that we are identified with him. All that is Christ is imputed to us. All that is Christ is accounted for us. The blessings due to him as the perfect man. 
the love due to him as the son of God, the kingdom due to him as the great king, all of that put on offer, given to, made open to the believer. If Jesus confesses our name, then the father gives to us the blessing, the love, the honor, and the treasure. And so as Jesus finishes, the simple question is this. Do you have the ears to hear? Have you heard tonight for the first time the beckoning of Jesus Christ to come and find in him refuge? Because you've been trying to earn your own righteousness. You've been trying to flee from the notion of sin. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else because God gave no one else under heaven by which we can be saved but him. Are you a Christian tolerating sin, unrepented in sin, hiding sin? The command of Jesus is wake up. He will come and it will be a rude awakening for a church like Sardis that is floating around tolerating unrepentance or for individuals, for individuals who tolerate their own sin. Repent, find grace and mercy and power to repent in the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father God, Father God, how much the the book of Revelation opens up to us ultimate, true, deeper reality than what we can see in in our life. As we look around, as we take guesses at what the Christian life is and is like, what we would speak about, the, the Christian life and church being as the, the book of Revelation shows us cosmic, beautiful, spiritual, glorious realities. And we thank you for it. And there are some tonight, Lord, and we come and we have, we have pride in our hearts and arrogance in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of what sins we're tolerating or in terms of how we re- relate to the people around us. And I pray, Lord God, that you would bring to us humility, a lack of competition, a lack of spiritual snobbery, a lack of one-upmanship, and we would simply find ourselves on level playing field, on our knees before the throne of grace, and know that Jesus Christ is our only hope, and we are all equal in that. I pray, Lord God, that, that those who have sins that are being tolerated, that are unrepented of, the Lord God, you would give them the one thing they need, the one thing that can help them, which is a portion of the Holy Spirit to cut them to the heart, to bring them in empowerment to repentance and to walk in the true and right way. I pray, Lord God, for those who do not know you, for those who are like some of the people in Sardis. They are Christian only in name, but they have realized that they do not actually know you as their savior who bled for them, who died for them. They do not identify with you like that and their life does not look like one of radical obedience, Father God. Would you give to them a new heart of faith? Would you give to them an awakening, raise them out of the spiritual grave and give to them your Holy Spirit? And for those who don't even call themselves Christians, who are far off, who are alienated, who at this moment would never have thought that they would become a Christian, but now they are feeling their heart condemned and compelled to come to Christ, Lord God, would you please give them that new life? Give them Christ's righteousness so that he might confess their name before his Father. Father God, honor your Son as you build us up in the most holy faith. It is in his name that we pray confidently and cheerfully. And everybody said... Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.